Welcome, Tim Kring. I am uh, honored to have you in a discussion with Jitex and Expand North Star. You'll be coming to speak at our event in October. Yeah, thank you. Really looking forward to it. So can we begin by um, having an overview on uh, who you are and um, what the audience should know about you? Uh, okay, well, I'm a, a, a longtime uh, Hollywood uh, storyteller, um, primarily known for television, uh, for creating drama series. Uh, and um, but my, you know, my passion is really about the audience and and how to engage audiences in new and interesting ways. And, and so for the, for many years, there was a, just a very traditional model of that. There was really only the, the, the Hollywood version of, of television where you pushed content out into the world and your relationship with that audience was very limited. You, 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 you your only, uh, understanding of even how how the audience interacted with you was just a Nielsen rating up and down kind of thing, um, but uh, you know once the internet became you know a, a place where audiences could find a show and then gather around that show um, and and gather online, then suddenly it became uh, my fascination with with how to reach audience became much more. Uh, um, about the dynamics of uh, of how to have a relationship with the with the audience um, that that could be more dynamic and more involving, and that has led me to all kinds of other kinds of storytelling um, that engages audiences across multiple platforms and tries to reach audiences where they are. So that's those are the things that uh, I think people should know about about me. I mean, that's a great message to startups and founders that you view the, the potential clients as audience. Yeah, I, I think that it's a big mistake that a lot of startups have, you know, where you're you're trying to, you're creating a product, you're creating something that's going to have users and customers, that the a storytelling approach changes that word from user to audience. And just the word audience has within it an implication it has a set of parameters it has a kind of it, it implies a relationship you have a relationship with an audience the audience has to it's almost a dance it's like a tango the audience has you have to coax and up and appeal and entertain and hold things back and push things out there's a dynamic relationship to an audience a, a user can be sort of a cold thing. I'm going to put something out into the world and the user is going to use it, right? Um, I, I just think that it can be psychologically by just approaching that user as an audience, um, it just builds with it a more holistic approach, a more sensitive approach, a more dynamic approach. And um, I, you know, I just would urge people who are creating um, products in the world to spend a little time on a thought experiment of of thinking about the end user as an audience member uh, and that you are you are a storyteller trying to tell your story to that audience and see how it changes the way you think about your product. I think that that's a very um, that can be a very I think it's a you know when you we look at somebody like Steve Jobs, Clearly, that guy was the storyteller. He understood the 
the whole idea of drama and 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 mystique and mystery and holding back and then you know revealing and he and he understood his, the user as a, a dynamic you know uh it was a dynamic relationship he wanted people to feel something and uh, experience something you know and so I think a lot of it, the times, you know, the, the engineering approach sort of fails to recognize that part of it. It's almost like it's almost sort of like left brain, right brain a little bit like you. You can go through the world left brain or right brain and function just fine. But when you figure out how to combine them, you you can do, you know, th these are where so big heroes is what you're game changing things for. And come I wanted from. to have a conversation with you about the superhero industry. Heroes came out in 2006 and roughly coincides yeah. with the MCU that started in 2008, I believe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. And the industry for superheroes has certainly changed since then. And I wanted to hear what you think has changed. Heroes is very unique and groundbreaking to this day in presenting heroes as ordinary people with, that discover superpowers and in an ordinary, wow. relatable world. And that's very different from what you have today. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, well, listen, the truth is there was there was really no other version of, of doing Heroes at the time because um, the networks uh, at that time thought that anything genre was kind of relegated to... Remember, broadcast networks were, were just that. They were about broadcasting, <laughs> about reaching the biggest audience. So television shows, you know, that were successful back in that era um really tried to be all things to all people right you didn't have you didn't have these little nichified audiences where you know a, a, a fractured audience that if you like to watch this kind of show you go to this particular platform and watch their shows these networks needed to reach as broad of an audience as possible and so there was a belief within the you know the the network culture at the time that genre uh superhero comic book anything having to do with that was just simply too small of an of an audience and to try and do so in a way heroes had to have this um almost trojan horse approach to to having a superhero you know genre underneath it it had to sneak up on the audience in other ways it had to be you know in in some ways uh, Heroes was designed um, uh, to to be all kinds of shows combined in, into one, uh, uh, and and the truth is, I was not a genre guy, um, and and maybe that's what made it possible for me to actually pull this off. Is um, I was not, I didn't grow up as a comic book guy and a, a big genre guy. I didn't really know the rules. I didn't really know that much about the the you know, the genre. And so um, I, I was approaching it at, at the time. I wanted to to do a, a show about, um, I wanted to do an aspirational show about the world that we were living in. It was post, you know, it was sort of a, it was post 9-11. And after that, there was, the, the world was a very scary place for a few years after 9-11. And we, uh, you know, we had shows that, that um, became sort of jingoistic, shows like 24, uh, and shows like that that were very much about, you know, 
um, the uh, killing the other, going after people that are. And I I started thinking about well, how could we do a show that was sort of aspirational? Uh, I, I was raising kids, you know, small children at the time. They're now older, but um, they were small at the time. And I was thinking about the world that they were going to inhabit and what kind of you know, where were the where were the heroes for them going to come from when a lot of the institutions had broken down? And and so I started to think, well, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be aspirational and inspirational if if the heroes that could save the world um, were, you know, the kid next door or the weird guy down the street or the kid that sits in the back of the classroom that nobody pays attention to? You know, I started to think that rather than even ordinary people, I, I was like, what if they're like hyper ordinary, like the kind of person you would not even look twice at when you walk down the street, you know? Um, and that they would have the, the powers to do this, I, I thought would be very relatable uh, for, for people. And, and, um, and so, and I, I wanted to treat the idea of a superpower not as a, I wanted to, you know, it had been relegated to this fantasy idea where everybody understood what superpowers were and you put on a spandex costume and you were, you know, but I wanted to do like, what would happen if it really, what would happen if you woke up and you thought you could fly? You you got out of bed and your foot hovered over the ground for six inches or something like that. And then it dropped back down. What would you do in real life? What would you really do about that? You know, you might you'd panic at first. You'd think maybe something was wrong. Maybe you had some kind of like balance problem, a physical problem, you know, or you did, thought you were going crazy. And then maybe you go talk to a shrink about it or talk to a, you know, a priest about it, you know, whatever it is. Um, how would you really react to these things? And and in the in truth, I, I, I wanted to treat them almost as though, um, treat these, these superpowers um, and the and the awareness of the growing awareness that you were changing, I wanted to treat it almost like a, as a curse or an affliction. And uh, you know, if you if you, if you are a person who's you know you've got a job that you don't like and you're trying to date this woman and it's not going well, and you've got a you know a mother who's dying and you're trying to take care of her, and then you discover that you've got this superpower, right? Well. Okay, I'm still trying to date this girl. I still have this job that I don't like, and I'm still got a dying mother. And how's it? How's it helped my life that suddenly I find out I've got this superpower? And I thought that that was an interesting way to create drama is to treat it as though it's this affliction that you have to learn about, and then once you learn about it, then you have to perfect it. And once you perfect it, you realize you can do something with it. And then you realize, oh, I've got a destiny to do something important with this. So that was the arc I was trying to. And so that lent itself back to your original question. It sort of lent itself to. To going through the portal of a very uh, of treating these this as a kind of an relatable, ordinary, um, you know, yeah, storytelling. I'm, I'm not a big superhero guy right but i loved the first iron man movies and yeah and then you're saying like you're so tempted to do it just because you can but the focus has shifted towards doing just a lot of cgi and no one mm -hmm. is really captivated by it like 
I watch. Well, I think Marvel yeah, I think it's, I'm just it's like a movie. It's like a video game I'm watching. Yeah, and I think you know one is the is the um, you know that that obviously the the studio executives and the ones who you know who are reaping the benefits of these movies they see the success of a movie. And they think that that's the thing that they have to duplicate. You know, it, it worked once, so it can work again. And this time we'll give, you know, it, it had a $100 million budget last time and made a billion dollars. Let's give it $150 million next time. And, you know, I mean, there's this sort of natural kind of intention on their part to just keep duplicating these successes. And, and I don't know whether uh, the audience is just they're just being fed what's what's given to them or do they really want do they really want well, these, it's, these? it's pretty clear they don't want it i mean going back to the fatigue of superheroes uh mm. there's been one flop after the other they clearly don't want it. and i think there's a correlation between great storytelling and box office success and yeah like when you look at some of the flops i i think like captain marvel where there's more about the well to put it bluntly, the virtue signaling and the the wokeness of the storyline is more important than the actual character and the and the excitement and the drama. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of you know it's such a big tent uh, thing now. These superhero shows, everybody kind of wants their piece of it, right? So it's like, how many different ways can we make? you know how many different versions of a superhero show now, now that you are a superhero movie now that we've had these successes well how many can we have and how what if it came at it from this angle what if we came at it from that angle and you're right i think you know i it does feel like it's it's a you know that um to just it's like eating a big meal every single night at, at, after a week or two you're like um, <laughs> i'm not yeah i mean it's, it's almost let's not go out for the big meal tonight you know it's almost like yeah. um, the the distinctive characteristics of one movie from another is even lacking. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not yeah. a big fan, right? So for me, it's like it's all just the same movie at this point. Uh, it's interesting with a show like Heroes, um, were it to come back, a version of it to come back, um, the challenge really is, well, its success was its uniqueness at the time, and it's sort of global approach to casting and you know languages and the whole idea that people from all over the world were finding one another and it was about interconnectivity and and global consciousness and and if we could come together we could save the world there was a lot of aspirational ideas in it and it's hard to know right now whether that would be enough for people you know or is it what you're saying? Is it could it be actually refreshing to go back to something that restrains the idea of, you know, in in heroes? The truth is, we we really you know, there was a lot of sleight of hand in in heroes. You thought you saw a lot more superpowers than you did, you know. Um, and if you really added up those moments in an episode, there weren't very many. They and and they were alluded to, or the camera would find you know something after the effect would have been done on a movie. You know, we you know it, it, we we did a lot of sleight of hand, and I'm wondering whether that tease would be now um, almost kind of 
desired or or nostalgic in some way i mean in my heart i feel that that's what people are dying for i saw this uh, review on comparing the last mission impossible with the first mission impossible and they pointed out mm -hmm. that in the first mission impossible single gunshot fired in that uh -huh. last movie like mission impossible was a drama and yeah. now it's just yeah. one long action sequence. There is no right. the sequence of action sequences strung together. Yeah, yeah. And moving the, the the conversation towards technology, right? Like people seek a connection, an emotional connection to the characters, and they're not getting that anymore. And CGI yeah. is a huge obstacle for achieving that. But on top of that, the the scripts are so formulaic, and now the big debate is the AI and chat GPT in, in writing right. scripts. To me, it's like anyone with any talent, with any <clears throat> originality would have such an easy time to stand out. The other thing is that when I, the audience has now, uh, they understand what visual effects are. They get them. They know what's not real and what isn't real. I mean, what is real and what isn't real. And so that artifice of, of this isn't real um, I think uh, it it just creates a distance from caring about the moment. You know, you know yeah. that it's not really happening, right? So I I think going back to things that I mean, and even if you did enhance them with visual effects, if they were enhanced in a way that it was that artifice wasn't there, you you tried to make things feel as though they were real, and rather than uh superpower it almost felt like magic realism or something you know i think think that audiences might find that a little bit more alluring you know and more and kind of refreshing in a way uh, but you know again it, it all goes back to this you know the mission impossible example you gave there's a kind of mission creep towards you know like you know, it just happens naturally. The next one was like, oh, we had one gunshot in the next one. We can do 10 this time. And then when you do 10, okay, like, let's do 100. And and you know, it, just, it just keeps, you know. I want to hear what you think about, like, the overkill aspect of that. Because I remember hearing some commentary about when they created Superman, that he was just too all-powerful and any superhero needs its kryptonite and it's exactly yeah. yeah and now we're at the stage we're like oh you can lift a train throw it around yeah. every everyone yeah. is all powerful there isn't that relatability anymore in yeah. in uh, with superheroes like yeah no, and what like we found we found you know in doing four seasons of a show you know where you're doing a if you gave somebody too much power, you had to then find these ways to strip them of the power and bring them back to square one. You know, that it was like this constant. So it's a, I, I know exactly what you're what you're saying. It's it's that's that is the challenge. Things, you know, things just lose drama the more, you know, the more powerful that a character gets there. You have to find a way to undercut it and diminish it and all that. Yeah. You know. It's a complicated, it's a very complicated thing. And it has been very interesting to see how, how that, that mistaken um, premise that I talked about that the studios and networks had that genre was relegated. They didn't realize that there was this mainstream, uh, you know, audience hungering for, for this stuff. But not only that, it was, it coincided with the idea of fandom online and fandom being able to find one another. It used to be if you were a comic book geek, 
you know, you were you, you knew a few other comic book geek, geeks and, you, you know, it was a small little club that you had. Right. Well, suddenly with the, you know, the prolifer proliferation of, you know, online chats and fan bo boards and then social media and all of that, these people could all find one another and gather and and grow an audience. And and so once you realized how and, and those those people tended to be more fan oriented, more tech tech savvy so they could, you know, find stuff online and search for things and search for each other and all that. And so that kind of active, um, uh, passionate, crazy fan base kind of thing that happened around the genre. To have a fan base, you really need that relatability. And, and I wanted to go back to like the, the push on a lot of female superheroes now. I think one of the best examples of a superhero is Sarah Connor in, in Terminator. Uh -huh, that is yeah. very relatable. She is um, someone that works alongside men and she's still feminine. And, and I would like to add the bride in Kill Bill, right? It's also, she's playing on a lot of, on her femininity and working right. alongside men and her main enemies are both female with heroes you had female characters that had a lot of flaws just like sarah connor and the bride yeah. but a lot of the female characters today are flawless and they're all powerful and absolutely non-relatable like the she-hulk mm -hmm. was a massive flaw there is no character arc where where you allow for this relatability i created heroes pretty far into my career you know i'd been a a long time uh, writer of television and TV movies and some features and stuff. And it was, you know, the television that I wrote was all about character. You know, that was what you really cared about week in and week out. Um, you know, with a movie, it's a two hour thing and you want a spectacle and there's all of that. But, but with television, these people live in your home with you for an hour every every week and and you know sometimes for years at a time and so you 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 it's the lifeblood of 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 television drama is coming at it from the point of view of character so that again that combination of someone like me taking on a genre thing before it had taken off um I was very, you know, I just sort of naively approached it like I would any other, you know, uh, it was all about the characters. And and I didn't know any other thing because I didn't have, you know, I was not, I just wasn't enamored with the superpower stuff at all. I, I It never really turned me on very much, you know. Uh, I, I, was, I was only interested in those powers as how they afflicted my characters and forced them to make strange decisions and compromises and all that kind of stuff so i just have a very different you know i just came at it from a totally different angle then times were certainly different when heroes first came out i mean i guess you had tivo but you didn't have much internet streaming yes so i had to yes. wait for the episodes to come out yes and you've been an innovator of formats how yeah. do you see the your job as a screenwriter today in capturing an audience with an ever more shorter and fragmented attention. right so so heroes was a very um 
it was very innovative at the time of uh, in in how it approached the online the online audience at the time uh the ratings for television were starting to really go down for for all of television and and it was this whole migration of people you know suddenly social media had had popped up um you know youtube and 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 then gaming and uh there was, you know there's just all sorts of competition for people's eyeballs at the time and so the the ratings for nightly television was starting to drop so when heroes got picked up to series um at nbc i think there were six people in what they called the dot com division of the nbc at the time and um uh, that's when we got picked up. And when we went on the air four months later, um, there were 67 people. So they hired 60 people over this three or four month period. Mandate that this dot-com division of the of the network had was get out there and figure out where the audience is and how to get them back to watching television. That was It was really a simple mandate. They knew they were out there. Sort of desperate energy from the network at the time, it was really kind of desperate. That energy met with a show, Heroes, that had kind of a lot of possibilities of how to reach that audience um, because of the genre stuff and because of the Comic-Con audience that we were going to try and reach, right? So we launched at Comic-Con before any television shows really launched. With me was this guy, Jeff Loeb, who is a big comic book guy, big giant comic book guy. And he really understood that audience. And so we designed a whole launch at Comic-Con that from that launch, we had this massive viral campaign that grew out of it. There was this hunger for having something on the air that they, you know, that these fans could could relate to. So like I said, with this mandate from, from, from the network to figure this thing out, we ostensibly had sort of a blank check to figure this this idea out of like the 300 people that work on a television show, we have 50 of them were dedicated to the just the online stuff. And we did we did all kinds of experimental stuff because nobody, you know, as I say, there was no <laughs> there, there was no such thing as a bad idea because nobody knew what a bad idea was. So we could try all kinds of stuff. And so we did, you know, uh, web series and mockumentaries and mashups and mobile games and all this ancillary content where the audience could find elements of the show. And because the show had a deep kind of mythology and a deep, you know, canon to the show and way too much story to tell anyway every week, we, you know, we, it was a serialized show and it had a lot, a lot of story, a lot of characters. And so we we started to approach this online thing as a kind of 360 universe that we could tell story in different areas. So on our online comic books, we would have one storyline. And so if a character on, a, on the show walked out of a room and you didn't see him again, you could follow that story on this comic book that would pop up the next day online and you could see what happened when that character walked out of the room. And so it was trying to extend the story across all of these platforms and to sort of think of it as this three-dimensional universe that you could live in. And so the audience just loved finding all this stuff, all these kind of like threads and Easter eggs and discoveries. And then the holy grail of that was when something that would generate, something that was generated online in an online comic or in a webisode or 
even a you know some mobile content or something like that when that would migrate back to the show and so for the average audience it would make sense on the show that that character was there but for the online audience who knew all about that character it was really satisfying because they were like oh my god i love that character i know everything about him i know what what you know and there there was a so it was trying to generate a lot of insider knowledge because the truth is the 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 social currency of fandom a lot of times is your your knowledge the depth of your knowledge about the thing that you the the you know the the show or the story world that you love the depth of your knowledge is really your social currency right you know one if you give a a, a, a real fan a chance to find one more thing than the guy next to him that's a big you know that's a big deal and um and so we allowed for this interconnected world where people could find out a lot of stuff and um and one of the things that we found and this is really the most interesting part of the journey for me we generated this content you know a massive amount of content and it would we push it out to the audience and unlike television, where, like I said, you make the show two or three months before the audience sees it, then, you know, you get a Nielsen rating, <laughs> how whether the audience liked it, that, but you had no relationship with the audience. But with this content that we were pushing online, it was a much more dynamic, immediate rela relationship with the audience. You push it out in the morning by the afternoon, they, you know, the chat boards were all lit up and people were, you know, found things and discovered things and the scavenger hunt of it all. And so it became super dynamic and almost a, rather than a one-way street where you push content out and the audience just consumes it, it sort of became this two-way street. You know, people started creating, you know, fan clubs around characters and started creating their own fan fiction. They started creating um, merchandise and you know all it, it was like an a, an economy sort of popped up around this yeah. fan base which i found really really fascinating it was very scary to the network and the, the old traditional model because their version of like wait we don't control this thing you know uh, this is like this fan base out there that feels like they own this property and i was like Hell yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, who, you know, we were the most Ill, uh, illegally downloaded show in the world, right? Really? And really? yeah, and on, you know, these BitTorrent and Pirate Bay and all these kind of, uh, and, you know, for the network, they they wanted to lawyer up and sue these, you know, shut these things down. And I was like, you know, what better fan in the world is somebody who will illegally go out to watch your show? You know, my sense was, let's, Let's bring that guy in. Let's bring that fan into the fold and celebrate the fact that they're they're so hungry for it that you yeah. know they may you know. And at the time, remember, it was a it was a kind of distribution model where somebody in some part of the world that maybe the show wasn't airing there until April or June or maybe it wasn't ever going to air there, right? So for them, that was the only way to 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 find the show. I wasn't aware of this, but it's clear that you must have been very far ahead of your time to be using these different channels to reach an audience. And you keep using the word yeah. fandom. 
I mean, yeah. this is what the big studios are trying to recreate to, today, but when they try, yeah. it just feels so nakedly commercial when they put yeah. something yeah. out and go like, oh, this, even they sort of plant stuff that appears to be something from a fan, but it's obviously from a copywriter. I mean, you're so right. And the truth is, uh, you know, it, it, it was all organic. It was all authentic. There's, there's no genius behind it. We were just stumbling into the darkness, trying to, you know, make content for this audience. And, and, um, so a lot of this was just being invented in before our very eyes. And um, and you're right, you know, when you go to a Comic-Con now and you see the way they try and launch these shows and they try and convince you that this is a hit show. Well, we never did. We had this very quiet, weird little viral thing, you know, uh, that we did when we launched this. And, and it became really kind of the gold standard of how to launch a show. Um, but you know, like a lot of things in life, it's very hard to recapture authentic authenticity yeah. and authenticity is, you know, that is the one thing with the fan base that they, they, you can violate all kinds of things with your fans. You can, you know, cut a character's hair that they <laughs> liked or something and they'll get mad or whatever it is. You can have kill off a character or have two people fall in love who shouldn't fall in love, whatever it is. You can survive all those little skirmishes, skirmishes, but when something is inauthentic, let me give you an example. Right down to like some of the merchandise that we would sell, there would be a story about that merchandise on the back of the box that would give you the backstory of Hiro Nakamura's sword that we sold. You know, it had a little story about what the sword was that could only be found if you bought the sword and you read this thing inside the box, right? Everything that we pushed out had this kind of authenticity to it. The last writer strike we had, I was making Heroes, and um, we went on strike. And for about three or four months, content that went out to the audience continued was being generated by the marketing department of the network, trying to kind of emulate what we were doing, trying to kind of copy. And everything that we pushed out into the into to the fans all generated from what we call the engine room and the engine room of the show was the writer's room. So it had to be, had to come through the writers, the writers of the show who have the show in their heads had this kind of vocabulary. They knew what the show was. And so everything that came out of it was kind of organically to the, to the narrative. But when you have some intern in, in a, you know, in a, on the 15th floor of a building <laughs> whose job it is to, to put this content out, the audience really rebelled because they could yeah. smell the the inauthenticity. I'm really picking up on the organic creativity that you had at that time and really your production team and the writers being completely in sync with the audience. And on top of that, the prolific output, the productivity of pushing out and creating content very fast yeah, this, yeah. i'm really ma it makes me pine for that golden age of of tv right compared to what you have now where huge corporations working on one project for the longest yeah. time and there's absolutely nothing organic about it it's mm -hmm. it's you you got the the corporate focus and, groups and all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. Focus and, testing and i want to hear what you think like how you can't really go back to having something become authentic 
But- no, you know, for us, in all honesty, it was it was a it was a bit of a uh, <laughs> uh, it was a hard hard parameters that we were working under having to make 22 24 you know episodes a year it took us you know i remember having this conversation with the network executives the uh, the first year the first year of the show the first season of the show took us 14 months to make so i remember going in to talk to the network executives about this and saying look guys i think we're facing a mathematical impossibility it took us 14 months to make one year of television how are we gonna how are we gonna do this right and they were like we don't care you know this is figure it out this thing's a hit so figure it out and that constant grind of you know now it would take a year and a half to make eight episodes or 10 episodes and you could you know stretch this thing out it it was debilitating um and you know, I'm I'm the first one to admit that I sort of lost the thread after, you know, it's you're just so deep in the weeds. You never have a chance to sort of float above it and see which way it wants to go. The machine just eats you up. And um, so I don't long to go back to those days. I actually think that 10 episodes or so a year of, or, or you know, season, the audience has spoken in a way. That's what they seem to like, you know. Um, I think if something's on, I mean, there are certain kinds of network shows that still the procedural shows, the ones that don't involve you having to watch every episode. You can drop into a show of a, a cop show or a medical show. and But anything that has a serialized engine, r- now if we were to do 24 of those a year, I can't imagine how an audience would sustain, you know, I don't think they have the attention span for that. And, you know, I think you get... 15 episodes in and people would be like looking at their watch going, Jesus, is this thing still on? <laughs> like, what's going on here? You know, it, so there's a natural rhythm, you know, the same way that a song is, you know, two or three minutes long or, a, you know, a book isn't 12,000 pages. People have spoken. <laughs> the audience has spoken. They want 10 episodes of a show, you know. But when you were pressured to put out that much content in such a short period of time, didn't that help your creativity? I, I, I remember hearing. I think I absolutely do. Yeah, I absolutely I remember hearing do. an interview with Elton John when he said um, it used to be that you recorded an album, you set up the microphones, you went in and the album was done in two weeks. And now you've yeah. got all these abilities with uh, pro yeah. tools and editing and it takes forever. And the spontaneity uh, yeah. and the creativity is dead. I'm guessing I'm, I'm a big I'm a big proponent of of the idea of guardrails and limits and all that kind of deadlines and things like that. I think the deadline really drives creativity and, you know, it's the necessity thing. You know, you just have to figure it out because you have to figure it out. And the first season of the show especially had that energy because we were over our heads. We every department that every department on that show in that first season was so understaffed and so overworked. So departments that should have had seven people in it had four. And, you know, instead of uh, something, you know, that should have taken 12 hours, took 19 hours to do it, right? Everybody was so stretched and it was such a labor of love. And that spirit of, it's sort of like putting on a, you know, a play in, in summer stock or something. There's a kind of a spirit that goes along with that. And Sadly, it was just unsustainable because the economics just, you can't have people work that hard on, 
you know, but for but nowadays, like that first season of of Heroes would have been three or four seasons of television. And so do you wish we, that that Heroes could have gone on longer, or, or are you happy with the four seasons? That no, I, I I listen. We we were we were we had trouble maintaining that pace of of production at the time, and um, you know we were pushing. We had that same mission creep towards making the show. You know, sort of more pizzazz and bigger, and and things that, like I said, in those four seasons of that we made, then five years that we made the show, the the special effects that we did in the first season, like I said, that would take two weeks and back and forth and back and forth trying to get this right. We found by the by the fourth season we could do them in one day, and they cost half the half the amount, right? So that's how quickly that curve was was changing. You know that there was a real Moore's law kind of thing with um, with uh, with with special effects. Absolutely, it's just crazy what you can do now. Back in two thousand and six, <laughs> and all the opportunities you pounced on with the new technologies and the the social media at the time. Now, I mean, everyone's talking about metaverse. The, the pace is faster, and there's a lot more hype. Where do you see the opportunities? in terms of storytelling and uh, TV series now? I think that the, the whole idea of the web three part of it, the audience being able to interact in, and not, not only interact, but co-create with you things, you know, or, or have um, ways of, of, of creating their own characters and in that world. I think nowadays anybody who isn't thinking about how to tell story across some sort of multiple platforms, I mean this this device that we all carry around, you know, you know, um, is you know not only a content consumption device, but it's a content creation device, right? And so it's it knows where all your friends are and knows where you are. It it's got all these capabilities, and with AR especially I find very fascinating. I love the idea of the of narrative sort of popping out or, or pushing out into the real world and having a kind of almost pop-up quality to it, you know, um, escape rooms or, you know, that kind of thing, or a game that you can play around the narrative that involves your tracking devices, you know, your 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 activity steps or you know or gps or something like that it just feels like creativity around storytelling can really explode around all of this new technology we're looking forward to welcoming you to future blockchain summit and fintech surge tell us what can the audience expect at the show well i i'd like to talk about actually how to think about customers as as audience and and explore the idea of audiences want to feel like they have some kind of agency in the world. They want to feel like they want to express themselves. One of the things I've found as a storyteller in Hollywood is that audiences want to express themselves around the things they care passionately about. So um, I've co-created or uh, co-founded a, 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 a startup called ChangeUp that allows people to donate micro donations, a software company that allows people to 
to donate small amounts of money at point of sale. And this is a, a way for them to express themselves on the on the things that they care most about. And I think in a Web3 world where people want to create audience for themselves and push their, their ideas out into the world, um, one of the ways to do that is to express yourself as how you are changing the world, how you are making the world a, be a better place through your consumerism and the way you move through the world and the tech that you use to do that. So I'd love to explore that. We're looking forward to welcoming you. And then we'll do one for Expand North Star. Uh, you just talk about, um, uh, yeah, it's a startup festival. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's a, it's, it's the startup. Just, it's the same show. It's the same show, but there are different stages. One is for fintech uh, blockchain, and then there's one that is more like the the mentorship and um, more for the pitch competition side of the show. So this one is about which? The, the... the last one, Expand North Star, is for the audience of uh, founders and um, startups. So that's, this is about, okay. So the, yeah, I wanna actually just, to, I wanna talk a little bit about that for a second. So, so uh, which one am I doing more of a traditional Hollywood thing and which one am I talking more about change up and how to how to so build change up would be on fintech surge and uh, future blockchain that's the second one it's quite integrated and um, that's a like an industry audience of uh, fintech mastercard is part of that I saw you worked with mastercard they are yeah. a major part of that show and uh -huh. the expand north star show is it's like 1500 startups from around the world they're there uh -huh. for pitch competitions mentorship clinics and they have their ideas, uh, tech tech startups, and that's that's a much younger audience. And there, I uh, the 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 talk or interview could be more about you know um, uh, getting off the ground and uh, more inspirational, less technical. Right, right. But for me, <clears throat> I mean, I still come at everything through the lens of a storyteller. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah it, I, 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 right here. I got. All right. I have something for that. Look. <clears throat> yeah. I. Uh, um. Yeah. So go. I mean, I think I can. Yeah. I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be many seconds. Just essentially, yeah. you can say expand North Star. I look forward to meeting the startups. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. Tim Kring, screenwriter and creator of heroes. We look forward to welcoming you to expand North Star. What can the audience expect? I'm really looking forward to, to, to talking to everybody about um, exploring the idea of, of looking at, at the world through the lens of, of, of people being an audience and how to have a relationship with an audience. And I think whether you are doing a startup for customers or users, that want to engage with your products, it's still very important to think of people as the psych psychologically, how do they create, uh, how do they move through the world as, as an audience? And even when you're consuming, even when you are using social media, you are, you are there as an audience. And I think it's important to understand the psychology of that. And I think um, there's a lot to unpack about how to understand you know the the world through the lens of of creating for an audience and so i'd like to explore that with them i look forward to being in the audience
yeah. for your session at Expand North Star. Thanks. Appreciate it.
Tim yeah. Kring, creator of Heroes, 